Beware, spoiler phobes. You've stumbled upon a storm of spoilers. Rise up, rise up. I think about spoiling so much it's changed my memories. Did I see last season, or is it still the season just ahead of me? If I see it coming, do I tell or do I let it be? The choice is like a plot without a simile. See, I never thought we'd last beyond the full season. Some podcasts have even less a casting reason. Ask anybody why we live in fast and we laugh. Reach for a flask, we have to make this moment last off season. Scratch that. This is not a moment, it's the movement. We're all the book readers with something to prove when foes oppose us. We take a spoiling stand. We roll like Jamie. We're good, but we need a hand. And if we happen to guess the ending, does that invalidate the energy we're expending? Or will the crazy rumors begin an endless storm of spoilers that weakens what we're intending? I know the action on these shows are exciting. In Game of Thrones, they're all the bleeding and fighting. We've been reading and writing. We, we need to handle this beyond a t-shirt. Are we on alert for the spoilers or on a spoiler alert? <laughs> I'm past patiently waiting. I'm passionately smashing every expectation. Speculation is an act of creation. Laughing in the face of haters and sorrow. And you'll know we'll always be thinking past tomorrow. And I am not throwing away my... This week, we're going through time and musical space while talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. This podcast's spoken word can expand to include anything from the Broadway production of Hamilton, things from the published Hamilton book, the real-life Alexander Hamilton's life, and obviously some horrible attempts at podcasters to sing or rap. Hello and welcome back to a storm of spoilers off season tour. My name is Dave Gonzalez and I have not seen the musical Hamilton. And I'm Neil Miller and I also have not seen the musical Hamilton. I'm Joan Robinson and I have seen the musical Hamilton and lived to tell the tale. Oh, Joanna in the position of the know-it-all that's actually had the full experience. You've never been in this position on this podcast before. No, never smug, ever. I bet you read the book, too. Ugh, the worst. (laughs) (laughs) You, of course, are tuning in to Storm of Spoilers, the podcast that used to be about Game of Thrones, but now is about, like, plays and movies and stuff. Uh, We've been having a lot of fun, and hopefully you've been having a lot of fun, too. This is the time in the show where we get to hear about it. Joanna, do we get any reviews this week? Yeah, we got a couple. Thank you guys so much for responding to our call for reviews. I'm going to be read this first one because it, it contains within a crackpot theory. So nice. uh, it's a five-star review from Drinkwink. Uh, who says, during the Game of Thrones season, this is easily my most anticipated podcast uh, episode each week. But it's not perfect. My only two real annoyances are when Joanna nervously laughs after she says something she thinks is funny. And Neil's vocal fry makes me want to punch someone. <laughs> now, for a theory. What if Sam, vigorously studying the library, learns of the effect of dragon weapons on the others, and soon after hears news that the Queen of Dragons has landed at Dorne, not too far from Old Town. He immediately seeks her out, earns a meeting with her, and tries to convince her of the greater threat from beyond the wall. Tyrion, believing Sam, persuades her to bypass King's Landing and find Jon Snow. Uh, we are about to give you some Game of Thrones information that will uh, directly contradict that theory, but it's it's a good theory, uh, regardless. And then the other review I want to read is from... Rule 116, and the title is, I'll make this short and sweet, five stars, Game of Thrones plus Hamilton equals five-star review for me, exclamation mark. So, um, thank you all for your reviews this week. 
Yes, and as we were alluding to just there, we have dragony dragon happenings on the Game of Thrones front, which is exciting because usually, or since the, the season ended, it's usually been like casting and location things. This is also a location thing, but full of dragony goodness. Right, Neil? Yes. Um, and I'm not sure what vocal fry is, but thanks. Uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, actually the reason I read that aloud is usually only women are accused of having vocal fry. Mm. So it's kind of amazing that, that you're accused of having it, but it's this crackling sound. I get accused of having a lot. It's this crackling sound in your voice. Uh, a no less than Ira Glass has a vocal fry. So you're in good company. Yeah. It goes good with always, your vocal uh, shake. I've always considered myself a feminist. So <laughs> there you go. I guess that means it's okay. Anyway, back to the news, back to the Ravens of the week. We had a big, big bit of news that, uh, you know, I read about it on VanityFair.com by this up-and-coming uh, writer, Joanna Robinson, yes, uh, who explained a little bit of the rumor, which is that Game of Thrones is eyeing this place called the Italica, the ruins in Spain. Now, I, it's an actual place in Spain that looks like kind of a fighting pit, uh, even though it, Italica sounds like a like the next documentary about people who love words and fonts. <laughs> so the question, uh, of course, is what would this be? And as Joanna explained to me off air and is going to explain to all of you now, it is a dragon pit, but not just any dragon pit. Yeah, I mean, I will definitely give full credit to Watchers on the Wall, which is where this information comes from, and I consider them a very reputable source. So if they say, our sources tell us that this is the Dragon Pit of King's Landing, I believe them. So you can go either to my article or theirs. I'll let you decide. And, and links lo- <laughs> to this, so you can start there and just go on through. There you go. Uh, and, and links, uh, there's, there's a photo of this, of this pit in, in Sevilla, in Seville. And, um, it is the dragon pit on the hills of King's Landing, which you're forgiven if you don't know much about because they don't talk about it on the show, uh, to my recollection, but I know you guys will correct me if I'm wrong. And they don't even talk about it that much in the books, but it's this big structure that Magor, who, who built, uh, the Red Keep, right, and the whole fast, um, he built it on the hillside of King's Landing to hold the dragons. Uh, rumor has it the dragons of that era were, were smaller than, you know, the freeform dragons because Dave, have you looked up that, that, um, what that is? Anyway, uh, there's a, there's a theory that, or no, a biological fact that an animal will only grow as big as its cage. So oh, the yeah, dragon- there's a word for that, and there's a Harry Potter creature from Fantastic Beasts that does that. I just forget the word. Um, but it's on the tip of my mind. So it's, uh, you know, they like, uh, transmogrify or whatever to fit. No, I know that's not it. Uh, anyway. So, and, and it got destroyed. The dragon pit got destroyed in, um, the Dance of Dragons. But an angry mob storm, you know, directing their anger at the dragons as they want to do, destroyed the pit. It had a dome on it, uh, that one of the dragons sort of like burst through. And so it's a ruin now. But uh, sources say that Daenerys, Amelia, good old Amelia Clark, will be filming some scenes of the Dragon Dragon Pit in King's Landing, which means Daenerys will be in King's Landing in season seven, which is a, a cool bit of news. And we can only hope that Tyrion is still with her, so that we get a big reunion of the Lannister siblings 
in King's Landing. I mean, if she's going to the Dragon Pit, I hope she's going to clash with the Lannisters this season. Or if the season ends with, like, her hold up in the Dragon Pit on the hill and, you know, the Lannisters gathering their forces down at at the, you know, in the throne room or wherever, like... That'll be disappointing. I'm hoping that this is all done and dusted by the end of season seven so that we can move on to Ice Zombies in season eight. Uh, what do you guys think of this news? I love dragon pits. Yeah. It sounds like a great place to, you know, keep a dragon for a little while. I, I just hope it's not like, uh, uh one of those weird, uh, like surprise things. Like it's also supposed to be a surprise of the dragon pit to us, the show watchers. Like, where are they? We saw they're like they're not anywhere in the sky, and like her her fleet is you know surrounding the thing. Where are the dragons? And then suddenly, out of the wrecked dragon pit, rises the Deus Ex Dracona again. Torches everything. <laughs> well, I mean that is a that is a move that I am expecting because it's Game of Thrones, but hopefully not from the dragon pit. I will say this: there is uh, one interesting thing is. There is somebody highlighted on Reddit, of course. Thanks, Reddit, for being the detectives of the internet and other things. Um, that in the first shot of King's Landing in the first season, where the, they actually did the title, King's Landing, Capital of the Seven Kingdoms, there is sort of a dilapidated structure on the far right away from the uh, Red Keep that you can see that looks like some of the artist's renditions of the Dragon Pit. So while nice. they may not have talked about it in the show, it's something that was there at some point, although later seasons don't seem to have it. That's weird. Um, but then again, I mean, they've changed. The look of King's Landing has sort of evolved over the seasons. But uh, I do think this is interesting. The My initial thought was, wouldn't she go to Dragonstone, which we know will be sort of an important place in the sense that... Um, that's where all the dragon glass is, and we know that dragon glass kills ice zombies. But uh, it makes sense that she's going to end up at King's Landing. Um, oh, neat. I also just, as I'm trolling around looking at this, the opening credits has a sort of dragon pit-like structure. All of this is making me feel Landing. better about it. Hmm? All this is making me feel better about it, because that's establishing the dragon pits there and important. So, I mean, right. I, f- I feel like, you know, Tyrion can pretty easily give us some fun, bookish exposition of, like, as a youth, I used to love to wander around the dragon pit and think about the dragons that right. I would someday meet. Um, <laughs> sort of monologue that would make us feel better about the whole thing. Mm. I'm anticipating that, you know, all the artists' rendition, rendering of of this structure have this cool ruined dome roof on it. Um, the, the ruins in Italica, the Italica ruins in Spain, do not have a top. But that can easily be CG'd on, I believe. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we're going to see a combination sure. of this real world location with a, a CG top on it. Yeah. So and there I we think go. that um, you know, bringing up Tyrion, that's a really good point. That Tyrion will come in handy when Daenerys goes to King's Landing because he really, you know, and I think this is one thing they've gotten away from a little bit with Tyrion is his scholarliness. You know, that we saw in the first season where he talked about reading books and being sort of obsessed with dragons, as we know from the books. So I think that'll be a really kind of fun dynamic. You know, and the question is, does Cersei even think about the dragon pit, you know? Or does, does Cersei even think about dragons? Because if we remember back, 
she wasn't really around when they in season one when they were talking about Daenerys. Like, who really knows in King's Landing about Daenerys at this point? Yeah, most of them are dead. You would assume. I mean, it's just rumors. Would, yeah, has heard rumors about her, but. So that's an interesting twist, I guess, because uh, that's probably part of Cersei's uh, inherent danger going forward is uh, her assumption that she is in some way one and not thinking about the threats that exist outside. She has to know about Daenerys and like the troops she's gathering. Does she, though? She's not that stupid. Beyond rumors? Um, I feel like, uh, you know, we're going to get a bunch of emails about this, I hope. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, but I, it's possible. I feel like there has to have been some conversations about this. Um, Maybe. The last time, it, to me, it, it feels like the last people that were really concerned about the Targaryens across the sea was Robert Baratheon and Ned, obviously, and then Tywin, to a certain extent. And it's faded to the point where no one really talks about it anymore. Well, I think, like, the wise masters will, you know, send on some word eventually, but I'm not I'm not sure if she knows at her coronation, which is where we left the show off, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- but- I think that's an... It, I mean, obviously, write in and correct me if I'm wrong. I, this week, I have been spending a lot of time in a car driving across the country. <laughs> so my brain's not all there. So Joanna's skepticism is probably uh, No, right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I mean, you know, Varys is definitely a better sky, uh, spy master than Kyburn, But Kyburn does have these, like, have those little birds that mm. I feel like if Kyburn hasn't talked to her about Daenerys, he has not done his job. And maybe, you know, he was too busy making giant zombie monsters for her. Um, but right. yeah. Yeah. And Kyburn um, took over Varys's King's Landing spies, but what does he know across the sea? He doesn't. Well, does he have those connections? Cersei did say there was that scene in season six where, which we all hoped meant Clegane Bowl, I think, where she talked about, make sure you send your birds everywhere, like, Mm. uh, hither and yon, except she used specific location names (laughs) Um, (laughs) to basically say, like, I don't think it was just, like, from Flea Bottom to the Red Keep. It was, like, from, you know, all over the place. Um, And so maybe it was just as far as, like, the Riverlands or whatever, but I, I... think Essos is in there, but but um, I will double check and and I'm sure we will get some informative emails from people <laughs> if and when we're wrong. Right. So there you go. Fair enough. That was our yep. Game of Thrones discussion of the week. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly we're a little those... rusty. One of them. Yeah. I am for sure. They'll, they'll they'll pause and write those emails now. Otherwise, they'll be dazzled by our discussion about Hamilton, that is also starting right now. So it's 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 a weird weird time on Game of Thrones because we usually talk about you know adapting a book series of fantasy novels uh, to to TV, but now we've sort of stretched. And I guess Hamilton it was our most requested topic of discussion by far. Mm-hmm. And so I guess musicals. I, otherwise, we're just going to slobber about how how great it is. But definitely for me, um, I you know in high school. Uh, Tried to do some football, but got tendonitis in both my knees. So joined the theater troupe to, you know, like you know, have fun, make friends, learn theatricality. Turns out I really like building sets and stuff. Uh, I kind of jonesed for storytelling, uh, but I've always had a soft spot in my heart for musicals. 
uh, as ways of delivering, I think, earnestness, especially when growing up when we did. We talked about, you know, from Stranger Things period to current period, uh, a lot of our, I think, pop culture is based on some sort of irony or some sort of cynical outlook. And usually for musicals, even if they end up uh, having somewhat of a cynical bent, uh, are the ways of having characters, I think, talk to each other in the most earnest fashion, which I think really benefits in Hamilton, not only because they use, uh, you know, hip-hop structure for a lot of the dialogue and songs, basically all of it, if you've uh, heard the the cast recording, which you should have if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, But it manages to, I think, humanize historical characters by placing them in this earnest and modern uh, context in a new time. So when I first heard Hamilton, I was like, holy shit. This is different, even though, like, every once in a while, like, living in New York, you'd have a holy shit Broadway show like Book of Mormon previously or Spring Awakening, where all of a sudden people are rushing to get tickets to these things. Hamilton felt a little bit different because it seemed like it took the now obvious step of, uh, you know, fully doing hip-hop culture and treating it just like a straight-up musical culture. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that volleys into further conversation except joanna how did you come about hamilton uh yeah well i'm a dyed in the wool like born and bred on musicals Uh, musicals is like mostly what we listened to in my house growing up i try not to talk about my love of musicals too much because some musical fans are deeply annoying and i never wanted to be confused for that person um I did do theater in high school. I was in musicals, you know, uh, growing up. And I came to the Hamilton musical. I'm going to claim a little bit of Hamilton uh, musical hipster cred because, um, you know, obviously I had heard of In the Heights, as most people did, who love musicals. It won a bunch of Tonys. And then um, This American Life had Lin-Manuel Miranda on to do like a, a musical of one of their stories, uh, which starred uh, the actor who played John Lawrence uh, on Broadway. And I was obsessed <laughs> with this like 10 minute musical that aired on NPR and listened to it a lot and made my loved ones listen to it. And you know, fell down a hugely Manuel Miranda rabbit hole. So was aware of the Hamilton musical because, uh, he, you know, he did this presentation at the White House a long time ago where he talked about the Hamilton mixtape that he was going to do. And he, um, saying the op- opening of Hamilton for President Obama. And so I had watched that on YouTube. And so all that's to say when the album dropped on, um, NPR, which was after previews, but before the official album came out, you could like stream it on the NPR site. I was driving back from Los Angeles. So it was September 20th of last year, uh, because it was, I was down there for the Emmys and I streamed it <laughs> through my phone, through the NPR site onto my like sound system in my car, just destroying my data plan. Um, as I drove back from LA to, to San Francisco Bay area, just listening nonstop to Hamilton. Um, so that's how I fell in love with Hamilton and then everyone discovered it. And then I went through that thing where I was like, I don't like it anymore. Everyone likes it. Um, and then I got over that and came back around to it, but that's my, it's my Hamilton story. 
Neil, how did you happen to cross <laughs> Hamilton? Um, well, it's interesting that you know we all come to it from different, I guess, uh, historical perspectives. My uh, link to musical, like I was never in drama. I was not dramatic or <laughs> any any sort of thespian. Um, but I did have my mom was very into live theater. She loved going to live theater, and I had an aunt who I was very close with. My mom's the oldest of six. And my aunt, uh, it was her youngest sibling. And so we were actually closer in age, my aunt and I, than she was to my mom. So, and throughout high school and after high school, she was um, very big in, like, local drama. Not just in the high school ranks, but in, like, the local Cleveland, west side of Cleveland theater. So, I remember, you know, going to productions of Tony and Tina's Wedding and... um, Evita. I remember sitting in the front row of Evita and they, somebody shot one of the fake guns and I got like a spark in my eye. Oh my God. So like I have like vivid, mem- many vivid memories of going to the Hating theater. Evita. Um, so I've always had a thing for, for live theater. I, I've always found it to be just fantastic. The showmanship of it. So Hamilton, I don't know if I was. Because I had never really heard of In the Heights, and I had had no real experience with Lin-Manuel Miranda. But I do remember when people started talking about Hamilton, and it was on the NPR site. So probably around the same time Joanna heard it, um, I remember streaming it once and just being completely hooked. Because, you know, as a kid of the 90s and lover of hip-hop, and really it's interesting because... As I've always kind of been a history buff, but in very specific ways. So, like, I love the Civil War, but I never really cared for the Revolutionary War. So it was interesting that Hamilton was so appealing to me on a historical level, which I think is one of the really interesting accomplishments of the show, is how well it simplifies and tells the story of uh, not just Alexander Hamilton, but kind of how our government was formed. And I think that's that's one thing that it's just kind of a history nerd. I really uh, have always enjoyed about it is uh, how accessible it makes all of that because it's it's kind of boring. I'll be honest. The non hip hop version of the story of <laughs> the formation of our country is uh, <laughs> is pretty boring. All this all the 1776 musical fans out there are judging you right now. Um, uh, okay, so here's the other thing about 1776. I uh, dated this girl who worked in, um, she worked in a think tank in Washington, D.C., and her family, very big in politics, they watched 1776 every year on July 4th, and we dated for several years, so this is 1776. I've seen it multiple times. I think it's fantastic. I now watch it every year on <laughs> July 4th. Really? No. Yeah. Um, that's really the only good thing to come out of that relationship. But I think it's great. So to all those 1776 fans who just rolled their eyes at me, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's true that Hamilton is like, a I don't know, almost a schoolhouse rock or whatever. It's, it's this really digestible way to learn history. I am not a history buff in like... I don't know, unless it has to do with 19th century British literature, I don't really care about history at all. <laughs> that's not true. I care, but like, I've, it's never been something that's really captured my attention. And, uh, so yeah, I know so much more about the founding of our country, like, like shamefully 
so much more than I did before I started listening to Hamilton. And I, you know, I, f- I feel guilty that I didn't know more before, but then I also selfishly want Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was, you know, has, was a teacher before he was a Tony award winning, um, playwright, songwriter, um, to do musicals about every era so that I am so much more knowledgeable about everything. That'd be great. Thanks. Well, and I think that's, you know, it's funny. We talk about, uh, you know, when we pick our topics, like, Oh, let's, we focus on adaptations because that's what we do here. And really we've, we've found a way to talk about all kinds of different adaptations. You know, last week we talked about sort of cultural adaptations with Leica. This is historical adaptation. You know, this is, and this is in my mind, a very true form of adaptation in the sense that you're taking something that exists. Obviously, the history of the founding of our country exists. Alexander Hamilton's life existed. But you are translating that to a different medium, and you're translating it in a way that brings in a new audience. You know, like if you think of Game of Thrones, the TV show, is translating George R. R. Martin's books for people who don't want to read 30 pages at a time about uh, what someone's having for lunch. Who doesn't? Come on. Um. <laughs> so I think in that, in that, through that lens, uh, Hamilton is just as much an adaptation of as any, yeah. anything else we talked about. And of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda has said that you know Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton is his main source. And if you obsessively go through the rap genius lyrics, the annotated lyrics on the website Genius, which I have, um, the tremendous nerds who have annotated, including Lynn himself, who have annotated the lyrics of Hamilton, will say these great things like if there's a reference you don't understand, they'll be like, check your churn out. He says it on page whatever that this happened with Alexander Hamilton. It's like, check your churn out is like, you know, uh, this, this repeated phrase. And, um, you know, but yeah, Lynn has been very forthright about the ways in which he took liberties with history which he did like especially with the angelica plot line and stuff like that to make a better story and i think you know him being forthright about what he's changed but also the way in which he didn't try to canonize uh alexander hamilton that he wanted to show his weaknesses as well as his strengths in order to really celebrate the man i think makes just the best possible story that we could be watching so Yep. It was weird because I'm totally a history buff. So hearing you guys come come around to it, it's like those. I I was initially aware a little bit about Alexander Hamilton's story, just because it's the first like U.S. government like big scale sex scandal that history records in like the new government, which is a lot of the focus of uh, Act Two at the end of Act One of the play. Act Two. Act Two. Sorry, war is already over. Um, but like, I, I think it was both my brother starting to go to school in Boston and visiting him up there and just killing time with like the weird history that is down back alleys and like old weird cemeteries where like the inventor of the crossword was and like Sarah Vowell books and like the HBO John Adams series all of a sudden like brought the revolutionary war to like a very real place, uh, that I think Hamilton furthers. Where it's like, there's, these are just a bunch of dudes in their, like, 20s and 30s trying to, like, make shit up. And then they get put in a position where that shit becomes America. And all of a sudden people are depending on them. But it all starts from, like, an anger position of, like, youth and taxes. 
which is basically the same motivating factor in like the loudest politics today, which is, you know, that's why history is cool, man. It's great. It's great to see things from Hamilton. Someone in the, you know, 1760s or 1770s was just like, God damn millennials. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Like what was the word for, you know, the young idealists of the time that, uh, Revolutionaries? They were, I guess, revolutionaries. (laughs) They were the millennials Um, of their time. (laughs) Uh, With their opinions. (laughs) And, yeah, someone today on Twitter was like, John Lawrence was the original social justice warrior, because, of course, he's the character who, you know, is the most passionately fighting to end slavery in in the musical. So, um, yeah, I guess that's my spirit animal. It's John Lawrence. Uh, Be loud, be annoying, die early. (laughs) Tom Lawrence. (laughs) In terms of musical characters that are our favorite, I think that Aaron Burr has all the best songs uh, uh, by far. Okay, so this is where I get to bring in my hipster um, in the room where it happens knowledge, right? Because since I saw the show. Yep. So going into the show, my favorite song was One Last Time, uh, the George Washington song. I, that is literally the most played song on my phone. Um, but. Cause you're just quitting things all the time. <laughs> I, I kind of. Um, but. I, I, I'm very, I just get very moved by that song, uh, not just because of its association now with Barack Obama, but also like, um, it, you know, it's, the the fact that they weave in the real speech, the fact that you have the speechwriter and the speech giver singing at the same time, like I just think it's a very sophisticated song that that a lot of people overlook because it's one of the more traditional musical songs in versus a lot of the more interesting like hip hop uh, rap battle stuff. Uh, that being said, so I was in line, a friend of mine who had seen the show already was like standing in line with me before the show. He was like my hype man. He wasn't going to go see the show with me, but he was like hyping it up. And he was like, not like it needed any hype, but he was like hyping it up to me. He was like, he's like, man, you're gonna, oh, Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, Aaron Burr, you're just, you're going to lose it. And I'm like, yeah, mm. I mean, I like him so much, but I think, I don't think I'm going to lose it. And then I saw him perform and I lost it. Uh, he is just so dynamic and it, and it definitely comes through in the soundtrack. And I'm not trying to be like, I know that there are plenty of people who appreciate Aaron Burr without having seen it, but I'm just saying for me, seeing Leslie Odom Jr. perform live, seeing where he smiles, uh, insincerely and where he doesn't and, um, how, how much of the show that smile is just slapped on his face, uh, is, was really transformative to me. And so since then, the room where it happens is, you know, I mean, it's the showstopper. It's the obvious favorite, but now it's, I have to admit it's the best song. So was that a nice. gross anecdote? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would have gone for maybe wait for it. But if you say that the room where it happens, seeing it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. Switching to that. I mean, wait for it is great too. It's interesting having just listened to it. Um, you know, which song, which song kind of sticks with me. And I feel like the story of tonight is the one that I constantly have stuck in my head. The, the more, you know, the the early revolutionary, uh, you know, the, the guys getting together and having, having drinks before the revolution starts. Uh, there's something, uh, 
the lameness of it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's something just hopeful and and the the revelry, I guess, is is fascinating to me, and um, that one's kind of been stuck because, and I also, you know, the which character do I like the best is is a good question, um, and I really, you know, Lafayette is not, you know, in it a lot. <laughs> Because he's what? Doesn't Lafayette die halfway through? He just he just goes, goes, goes back else. to France. Oh yeah, he goes back to France. Yeah. Um, but I think every time that uh, that that David Diggs shows up anywhere, either whether it's as Lafayette or as Thomas Jefferson, uh, I think that he's just fantastic. I love his like truly terrible French accent. It oh yeah, make, that, it fills me be... with so much joy. <laughs> and the same same kind of goes for because. The original cast recording, is it Jonathan Groff or was it Brian Darcy James? It's Groff on the recording. He's not British, right? No, no. (laughs) He's in Pennsylvania. (laughs) So I think that there's this uh, sort of charm to the terrible accents. And there's this also sort of inherent Americanism, American exceptionalism to the terrible accents. Where it's like, you know, this is such an uh, American interpretation. Like, it's this quintessential American interpretation of a very American story. So, of course, the British and French guy have these awful accents. <laughs> um, can I tell another really boring story about my relationship with musicals? Only if Please it's do. Super I, feel like this, I feel like this podcast is, like, more, more personal than it, probably any other podcast that this I've what ever recorded. This is, we're there in the room where it happens now. Um... One of my favorite things to do growing up was to get a, a recording of a musical that I had never seen before and listen to it and try to figure out the story just from the songs. And I did this for basically every musical. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I saw the movies of some before I listened. I bet your but... South Pacific was better. <laughs> <laughs> but but trying to figure out and, and and what it taught me is a really really fine attention to lyrics to try to parse meaning to try to parse plot and oh, by the way I think um ninety five percent of my vocabulary comes from um musical lyrics and um whenever I use a weird word that people are like why are you using it like one of my editors is like what is this word they're using in there and I'll look at it I'm like I know exactly what song in which musical I learned that word for and it made me think it was normal but really some lyricist just used a rhyme dictionary and screwed me into thinking an archaic word was a normal word to use um but anyway so point (laughs) (laughs) but but point being like you know I that's that was one of my favorite practices I would Anyway, I, I sound like an odd, lonely child, but um, I did the same with Hamilton, trying to figure out the plot of it, the history that I didn't know uh, from listening to it. It took me a while to figure out even who King George was. Like the first, I don't know, a couple times that I heard the breakup song, I was like, who is this evil British character in like in the colonies? Then I was like, oh, that's the king writing a letter. Okay. Um, and then like is sort of lead into that song, a message from the king. I think I listened mm-hmm. to it on shuffle. If I'm being completely honest with you, um, uh, which lent to my confusion, but which and is then, like completely counterintuitive to what you're saying you were I know, trying to do. I know, I know, I know. Um, and then, um, the, uh, 
the rewind song, like when Angelica sings and you go back and you get the, like the version of the ball from her perspective and all of that. Like, it's just, it's a really fun, weird exercise to do. Don't, don't listen on shuffle. Um, and you know, if you do it with another musical, I, I just recommend trying it. It's kind of fun. It's a fun, like brain teaser. I, I, I regret telling this story. Okay. Yeah. Well, from personal <laughs> anecdote parts, I guess I'll jump in. First one, just about musicals. Second one, I swear about Hamilton. Uh, we had this thing when, like, we were little. My mom would make me and my brother clean the house for a certain period each day. And what she would say is we'd each get to pick a song to clean the house by. And when each song was over, we liked, you know, got to stop cleaning the house. Uh, I was into, you know, like, pop and rock music. But my brother was exclusively into musicals. And he would keep choosing, like, 11-minute Phantom of the Opera songs. And I hated him for it. <laughs> but I do know a staggering amount of the fandom of the opera to this day. Second story, uh, the last three or four tracks of Hamilton consistently make me cry. So I need to uh, listen to them away from other people. Basically, everything from It's Quiet Uptown on is, oh, is God. just oh, yeah, going like to make songs. me... Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I feel okay and like politically interested in uh, Hamilton choosing Jefferson over Burr and, you know, setting up, you know, his own downfall. But <laughs> everything that, you know, sort of the losing child emotion all the way through taking stock of your life, all the way through the forgiveness and orphanage is just uh, crushing for me as somebody who doesn't cry a lot. So it's really interesting when it's like I, I have to, you know, take a walk and listen to Hamilton because otherwise people are going to see weakness. It's, it's <laughs> been very affecting for me. Uh, even it happened today. It happened today when It's Quiet Uptown came on. Mm -hmm. I was reading in the Hamilton the Revolution, the book, about how two of the cast members actually lost a son during the production process. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda sent them a demo of this, and apparently it was the only thing they listened to for a week, and they listened to it every day. And it was like when they finally did the sing through with everybody, everybody was crying. Oh my and God. Like knowing that, I had to listen to it again. And just, it was maybe eight bars before I was just like, oh God. There's, there's, there are moments that words don't reach. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The, for some reason, the choral part of It's Quite Uptown, like the background singer is just like, gets me. Um, can I talk about a spoiler angle on Hamilton? Yeah, I just want to give a cool factoid oh, for that yes. uh, chorus thing. Uh, that was built in, actually, so that they are the ones that are singing the, the actual full chords while everybody else just sort of gets a piece up until they do the chord switch at Forgiveness. And uh, then the people, uh, the main characters are allowed to sing the, the choral chords. This is like this is like the version of polygons. This is you giving us the polygons read of Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> it's so great. Um, I I was gonna say our, our friend of the podcast, Katie Rich, saw Hamilton. I don't know if she saw it twice before I saw it once. She saw it at least once before I did. She saw it in previews. So she gets to claim even more hipster credit. And um, she also saw that NPR Lin-Manuel musical live. So she's the the most hip of the hip. And uh, she was like, do you, can I, can I spoil the ending of Hamilton for you? And I was like, yeah, she's not talking about something that's on the soundtrack. Uh, she's talking about something that happens in the show that's not 
in on the soundtrack. And so since this is Storm of Spoilers, can I I mean I'm sure most people know it at this point, but can I talk about it? Does yes, Hamilton right? die? Hamilton's what? dead, Wait. but you know, so it's like, um, the whole thing ends with basically, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And, and it's a lot about, um, uh, Peggy. No, what? Eliza. Eliza. Thank you. Sorry. I was like, oh no. Nothing's about Peggy. Nothing is about Peggy. Except for that someone, song. Someone on Twitter. Someone on Twitter was like, talk about Peggy. You have to talk about Peggy. So that was like stuck in my brain. Anyway, it's about Eliza and the orphanage she built and all of that. And, um, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story sort of builds and builds. And as the musical ends, she like steps forward and looks up and like recognizes the audience looking at her and sort of like gasps at like, oh my God, people are looking at me like, Oh my God, my story is important enough to Whoa. be part of this. And I'm getting choked up talking about it. It's really powerful. And like Katie told me about it, you know, months and months and months and months and months ago. And I was like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. But then when I saw it, I was like, um, damn, that's amazing. So, um, yeah, that's a fun, not on the sound. There's the, uh, you know, I think Lynn Manuel Miranda has said there's like, five minutes of the play that's not on the soundtrack thereabouts because it's a mostly sung show so there's very little you're missing but um that's part of it so i'm looking through the playbook really fast to see if the looking up acknowledges it no does it you have to be in the theater for that in the room or you know uh if you're listening to this and you're like, yawn, I don't care about musicals. <laughs> Why have you listened this far? And also, I'm so frustrated. I'll never see it. I don't want to just listen to it. Um, if you didn't already know, PBS has filmed like full production with the original cast. I didn't even see the full original cast. I had an understudy for Eliza and Peggy, um, who's also uh, Mariah. But um, the rest of the cast I saw, but you will see the full original cast in this version that PBS has filmed that will air at some point on PBS. First, they're first, I believe they're doing a documentary, but once they have sold all the tickets they can possibly sell for Hamilton, we will see a, a filmed version. And, and like Dave gives me credits for this. I predicted this would happen only because of Lynn's background as an educator and his commitment of like making student tickets continuously available. Like it seemed very important to him that everyone from everywhere could see this show. And so I, I I'm 0% surprised that he made sure that there was a filmed version of this, you know, great performances on PBS does filmed full versions of shows from time to time, but there isn't one. I don't believe there's one of in the Heights. So, you know, yeah. not every show. Anyway, so we I can look all watch to it. Seeing it someday. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be have to be how my girlfriend, who is one of those people who has to see it in the theater to experience it the correct way, uh, first is gonna have that we might be able to mi- get a middle ground with the original filmed cast. But I think otherwise, I'm gonna have to pony up for some tickets at some point. <laughs> in what city, though? Who knows? Yeah, aren't they going? Chicago's gonna be tough. L.A. is already almost impossible. Eventually they'll come. They'll come here to Denver, I'm sure. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. I, I'm really curious since none of us got to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Is the differences between how Neil and I sort of took Hamilton versus Joanna's little nugs of actually being there? Because it's interesting to me how there's all these schools. Like if you think about hip hop just as a school of making art, which it definitely is, and then musicals is its own thing. 
and then actually staging its musicals its own thing, which I think are like the three overlapping circles in this Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. Then like Joanna's the only one that has all three pieces, but definitely I'm looking at it from or I'm trying to, you know, crack open the pieces using musical themes as like the backing. And uh, that's one of the great things that Hamilton does that it doesn't cede to the hip hop part of its uh, DNA is instead of having, you know, something that would be like a hook or a loop that, you know, would like repeat outside of the, you know, like maybe the, the 10 dual commandments. Um, instead, he retreats more to musical esque themes, which uh, allows, I think, for some more uh, variance in, um, uh, I guess, the how each line can be taken. So especially if you're talking about repeated lines, uh, like in It's Quiet Uptown, uh, Hamilton, you know, sings the part of the look around that the, the Schuyler sisters originally sing. Yeah. And when they sing it, they're talking about how great New York is. When he's singing about it, he's talking about how, you know, great she could find New York again. So the, there's a lot of things that this... Uh, that Hamilton does that are, feel very specifically musical to me, but unlike in what we consider like classical Broadway, it doesn't feel like it's leaning on a trope. It feels like it's part of the biography, which is part luck that Hamilton led a really dramatic life, but also mostly the the art and skill of Lin Manuel Miranda and his workshopping crew as he developed this to the public in New York. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, choked on. Choked on that monologue right there. <laughs> Choked on your emotions. No, I mean, I think it's, I think that's really true. Like that, um, I don't know, that the blend, the musical sensibilities, I don't know. It's almost like Hamilton, it's sort of like, let's talk about like with Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, I think, tricked, has tricked a lot of people into getting into fantasy when they thought fantasy was not their genre. It's a gateway drug to fantasy. And I feel the same way about Hamilton and musicals, like because it's got this cool hip hop uh, cred to it. A lot of people are obsessed with Hamilton who don't like musicals and, and what they don't. And they think that Hamilton is super unconventional, but it has a lot of musical conventions in it, including what you're pointing out, which are these reprises that have different meanings each time you hear the lyric again. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Trojan horse of a musical or a gateway drug, however you prefer to look at it. It really is, and That's I a- think it hits on um, just so many of the different different areas that <laughs> this is. it's going to be weird to say this word in regards to a musical or any piece of pop culture, but it feels, in a way, intersectional, where it's like it appeals to such a potentially wide variety of people across all different just def- demographics. Um, you know, there are people who got into Hamilton because they like hip-hop, or there are people who got into Hamilton because they appreciate history. There are probably a lot of people who got into Hamilton because they just love America. And um, and then there's, once you get into it, you can appreciate the, the craftsmanship of of how well-made it is. And I think that's what makes it... Uh, very universally appealing in a way that to me feels like it will have a very lasting effect. Like it will be one of the more definitive creative endeavors of our time. Yeah. 
And I think it wears a lot of its hip hop influences on its sleeve without necessarily, like I was saying, seeding too much of the mu- the musical on it. So it's like, this is, seems like a good time for an excerpt from Lin Manuel Miranda himself <laughs> on uh, how he wrote "Wait for It" because it's more like a hip hop song than like a Broadway song. So like most of these songs, uh, when he has the annotated in the book Hamilton Revolution, he annotates all of his songs, and most of them came to him either from like an old song that he had or from uh, writing that Hamilton had actually done or in the case of one last time, like Joanna was saying, Washington's actual uh, speech. Uh, but Wait For It was actually based on a loop. So I'm going to read this little excerpt of how he came up with Wait For It because I think it's an interesting process. Um, I often write loops. I make eight or 16 bars of music I think I like and I sing over it until it feels true. This is how Wait For It was born. At this point in my life, I was carrying around both an iPod and a phone. I'm grateful for this in retrospect because the entire chorus came in one ridiculous rush as I listened to the music on loop in a crowded train to a friend's birthday party in Williamsburg. I lived at the top of the A train at the time, so that meant taking the A from 207th Street to 14th Street, then to the L into Brooklyn. I don't know how to describe the feeling. It did not exist one moment, and then there it was, coursing through my head. Death doesn't discriminate. I got out of the train in Williamsburg and began singing into the voice memo function of my iPod from the loop I was listening to on my phone. This is why I was glad I had both. I said hi to my friend, wish him a happy birthday, had exactly half a beer, and turned around for another half an hour train ride home, during which I worked out the other three verse variations. <laughs> Music doesn't discriminate when it arrives either. It'll get you on the A train if you're open to it. Nice. <laughs> a lot of um, New York-specific details for my New York people there, too. Yeah. That's accurate training. Except <laughs> when the L train closes eh, for like a year and a half, which is going to be horrible for all of you. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> he says from Smugly in, in Colorado. Uh, one thing I do want to say about my live musical experience to make people feel uh, less annoyed with me. Two things. One, I did not plan that. That was a surprise thing that happened to me. My sister and my dad got me a ticket without me knowing. So, uh, you know, I'm not like crazy money bags person here. Uh, that that was like my birthday Christmas gift for the rest of my life, basically. Or Katie Rich keeps getting invited to Hamilton by people who work on Hamilton. Uh, yeah, Katie Rich has got the connections. Um, <laughs> I also, yeah, I mean, well, actually, that's why they bought me the tickets. They're like, surely Vanity Fair can get you into Hamilton. I was like, no, guys, because I was in New York for work. They're like, surely. Vanity Fair can get you. I was like, no, Vanity Fair is not going to get me tickets to Hamlet. They're, they're Hamilton. They're like, what use is Vanity Fair if they cannot get you tickets to Hamilton? I was like, guys, it's not going to happen. Uh, and so then they just did it. And uh, the other thing I was going to say is I happened to see it um, like two, two or three nights before the Grammy Awards. So they were really hardcore saving their voices. <laughs> so I got like a pretty subdued... Uh, like all the places where they didn't have to really sing out, they were singing very quietly, uh, saving their voices. I don't blame them, but like, I'll be interested to see the PBS version along with everyone else to see, um, what it's like when they're like sweating every note. So yeah. I don't know. I'm just trying to be more relatable, guys. (laughs) I mean, but you're the, you're the one that has the, the extra performance piece, like I was saying. And that's definitely, I mean, the saving the voices thing is something I remember fondly from my musical theater days, where it's just like, I don't know, that rhythm you get in where everybody's just like, we're doing this forever and it's good and we know it, so let's just make sure everybody gets as much good as they possibly can. Man, sometimes I miss being on like tech and musical theater. 
do not miss anything from Greece uh, <laughs> for maybe maybe forever. I'm gonna die knowing how to do the hand jive, and I hate it for that. Would you say I also that know you how were, to do the hand jive. Um, maybe born to hand jive. <laughs> maybe, baby. <laughs> Who knows? What's your favorite musical that you worked on, Dave? What's my favorite musical that I worked on? I don't know. I don't think I liked any musicals that I worked on. I just liked working on musicals. Or I just liked working on plays, and then I liked the idea of a musical because of like that earnestness thing. So I was like in high school theater when Moulin Rouge came out. So like you better bet that we were like building shit and singing all of Moulin Rouge. <laughs> and like that's that sort of thing. It really sort of comes back into like uh, I don't know. It takes a like a great performance from an actor who is just trying to convince you that they're doing something real to convince me in a drama or a genre piece that they're feeling a real emotion and i feel like both live theater and musicals have the benefit of you're right there and they have uh you know the magic of what how humans process melody and rhythm to like additionally like plug into your heart so i have to say that like working on musicals isn't so much fun because it's like you're seeing the inner workings of it. It's like, you know, editing this podcast isn't fun, isn't as fun as listening to it, hopefully. But some of my most touching theater experiences haven't been like, oh, I finally get Shakespeare because I saw it. But, oh, I'm finally in a room for a musical that I thought was shitty. But here's the I Want song and I totally get it because there's like something about the chemistry of being in that room. So it's like a, it's a powerful medium, and then the fact that this one can do it to me without me being in the room makes me think that if I ever like go, I'm going to have to wear huge sunglasses to covering up my like <laughs> emotional history tears. Like I'm having like historical tears. It's, it's amazing. Historical hysterics. Um, Neil, I know you already talked about getting a spark in your eye, but do you have like a <laughs> like a favorite musical that you saw live? Um. I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's interesting because I think I was mildly injured. Uh, but Evita was just fantastic live. Um, it's, it's such a, there's such a singular effect to some of those songs. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that I always appreciated. Although I did see it when I was very little, like probably 10 or 11. I think the first time I ever fell in love from a distance was with the girl who played, uh, it was Wizard of Oz, and she played Dorothy, and we were the same age. <laughs> and she was Oh, I also adorable. fell in love with a Dorothy in elementary school. Yeah, though. so this was oh, this man. would have been like late elementary school, early middle school years. And Is it the pigtails? It was the pigtails. I don't know what, I mean, I don't know <laughs> the what it gingham? was, but it was, uh, you know, it, it plagued me for, for a long time after that. Uh, I still... It's weird how you have those memories from your childhood, uh, and some of them are more vivid than others, and that one is just like it happened yesterday, kind of vivid for me. So, uh, so maybe, maybe it was Wizard of Oz, I don't know. My, nice. er my earliest, like, um, actually, yeah, my most famous feeling moment of my entire life, I think, uh, and I don't have very many. <laughs> Um, is in seventh grade when I was the lead in the musical and um, like some small child, like a child 
came backstage, his little boy, and like his mom or his older sister or whatever was like, he's in love with you and he's too shy to tell you, but he just like, he loves you. And I was like, oh, child. I mean, it's like not creepy. It was just sort of like, oh, that's the power of like character and acting and like all this sort of shit is like, I was never like an ingenue in any way, but like that was, yeah, this, this whole thing. It was, that was a musical, Lil Abner. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we're discovering <laughs> that we're, we've all learned like some of the pure lessons of, uh, I guess like acting as storytelling from theater originally, mm-hmm. or at least by like crushes on us or from us. Yeah, to... I feel mine is really shallow by <laughs> comparison. <laughs> Well, I think that's. Well, I mean, I mean Neil and I were just crushing on virgins of you, <laughs> just like you know, it's just the other, the male side. Of it. Well, and there's, um, you know, there's an intimacy to theater that I yeah. think that you search for in other forms of media. You you search for that level of engagement. You know, the theater, watching live theater was one of the first places I learned to be quiet, be undistracted. Obviously, this was before I ever had a cell phone. Um, and just sit there and engage with the story that was being told uh, in front of you, a story that you could, if you wanted to, reach out and touch. You didn't because that would be disrespectful to the people working. <laughs> the um, platform. <laughs> but it was, it was right there, and it was this singular moment of engagement and the shared experience with the other people in the audience. And whether you're in you know, the, the Rogers Theater watching Hamilton with a thousand people or however many people that thing holds, or you're in a community theater on the west side of Cleveland where it's like 50 people packed into a small room, there's that, that intimacy and that shared experience is something that I think once you're inspired by it and once you feel it in a very pure sense, you are constantly searching for that, you know? And I think that's what draws us to shows like Game of Thrones, it's the shared experience that that we that we look for, and that the true engagement that you get. And you know, in my life, the some of the earliest of those experiences were were in in a, in a theater, in a live theater setting. Yeah, yeah, or even still, some of the like I was saying, the most affecting. I remember being, uh, I saw the Edward Scissorhands Ballet in London for some reason. But it had a similar moment to, I guess, Hamilton has, where at the end, Edward, like, turns towards the audience and makes it snow over the audience, which plot-wise makes no fucking sense. And it's, like, at the end of a ballet, and, like, Edward Scissorhands has already happened. But at that point, for whatever reason, I was, like, studying abroad in London. I hadn't seen my family for a few months. Like, Americans were not popular because George W. Bush was president. And, like, I was like, oh, my God, I'm Edward. And it just, it it worked in some sort of weird weird way that like spoke to like the weird child in me so i guess i guess musicals is my soft spot it took us mm. you know however many episodes of this show to, to find that it certainly <laughs> isn't dragon polygons it's musicals <laughs> i think the best um live musical experience i ever had was i think i was in fifth grade i want to say and the family went to new york and, um, like my family didn't really take trips to like, well, we once, but like we didn't take trips to places that weren't like New York or London to see all the theater all the time. <laughs> like that's what my family would do. So we would like go to London and see for like four days and see like six plays. Um, 
And so we went to New York and when I was in fifth grade and we saw a production of Damn Yankees that had, uh, Victor Garber as the devil, BB Newirth as Lola, uh, and Beth from the office. Oh no, from, not from the office. Duh. From news radio was in it. And, uh, she's an amazing dancer and singer. And it was just, uh, so good. It was so <laughs> good. Like Victor Garber and BB Newirth are like, you're hard pressed to find. Anyway, I just, there's just something about watching these people at the top of their games. And when you meet another theater nerd, like, I only want to have these conversations one-on-one, or in this case, like, the three of us together. Because I don't like to get, I think a gaggle is too much. But if you have a one-on-one conversation and geek out about, like, Broadway stars or someone, there's something really exciting to me about that. Um, Yeah, form a mob. Keep it separate from karaoke. That's a different. That's a different scene. Yes. But form a small theater mob in yeah. hushed tones. Hushed theater. tones. Yeah. There was just something about like I don't know in college. I think especially is where I discovered it. Where like if you were at a party where a bunch of people wanted to like sing Rent, and I'm like, no, 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 this is not how we musical. And I appreciate that. That's how some people musical, and it's just not how I do. And maybe it's because of what you were saying, Dave, where like it feels like a really personal private experience for me like my interaction with these shows are really emotional and not to say that other people's aren't but for me it's better to be like a close quiet shared thing than i like i don't know i don't know what it is about like large groups of musical people that make me feel so i think i think it is there are a lot of people who maybe they they feel as a part they feel like a participant Whereas, like, you know, the way I take in a musical, or even for that matter, a movie or a TV show is is purely as um, an observer, you know, as a connoisseur, a professional appreciator. And I feel like there is this level in our uh, pop culture world, especially now, uh, where people feel like participants. You know, they feel like they're part of whatever they're, they're you know, watching. They feel like... Um, you know, I, I think that's, it's, it's interesting because I like that part too, like fan fiction and, uh, I love, I, I'm into karaoke, but like, you know, the, it's, there really is a difference, I think, in engagement sometimes between, uh, the people who, uh, you know, feel like they're sort of part of the show and they go home and they sing Hamilton. Like, I don't sing Hamilton. I will dance around my house to Hamilton all day, but, uh, no part of me wants to go to a party and, and rap out. I sing it in the car. Like I said, these are very like solitary pursuits for me. Um, the, I like, I, I, yeah, I like what you have to say about that. I think there's, there's no like wrong way to do it. It's just not how I like to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I did go to see the Mamma Mia musical, uh, or the Queen, or, no, sorry, the ABBA musical Mamma Mia in San Francisco with a, like a group of friends someone's mom had like purchased the tickets and we went and they're at the end they have everyone like stand up and dance and sing and i was like this is not how i like to musical <laughs> yeah don't involve the crowd at the end i like, don't want to do that so that's me like and I'm, I'm probably just like wound too tight or whatever but um like i'll sing abba at home but i didn't want to do it in that theater so yeah i'm also i hate crowd participation shows like i get it but like if but if you're in like a, a space where it's supposed to be immersive, but if you're in like a proscenium theater and you walk out and you pull someone up on stage, fuck your show. Yeah. Show. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is not on the back of the ticket. The most I'm willing to do in a proscenium stage setting is wear a poncho because I may get wet. 
That is the most interaction you're going right. to get out of it. Are me. you talking about Gallagher right now? <laughs> I'm talking about the Blue Man Group, but Gallagher okay. too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I if I ever wear sat in the front row again, I would wear goggles. <laughs> After that spark incident. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there was one period where I got to sit in the front row for the Lion King and like a giraffe puppet head came down into my lap. That was kind of cool. But I also, they were lucky that I wasn't like a snotty little kid because I could have just yanked that thing off and ruined a production of The Lion King. Mm. But, you know, I could have saved Spider-Man from Julie Taymor. So maybe maybe that hey was my now. moment I need to travel back in time for. We still need Julie Taymor in this world. <laughs> just not in Spider-Man things. I feel like I always have had a this, this you know, uh, you know how some people go and ride roller coasters because they want to live on the edge or whatever. Um, I've always had this terrified thing with live theater of, uh, like being part of audience participation. Like I love to go to shows for some reason. I do like to go to shows where there are audience participation and this is kind of off topic, but like I went to, you know, in Vegas, went to the, uh, Cirque du Soleil, but like the adult one, like the naughty. Oh, Zumanity. Zumanity. Yes. I've seen Zumanity. I saw it with my grandparents. I, that was also a mistake. I saw it with uh, a girlfriend at the time who was as uncomfortable as anyone I've ever seen in any one single place. <laughs> but uh, there's something about me that, that draws me to a show like that, but is deeply and very viscerally terrified of being pulled up on stage. So there, that must be part of my personality, this, this sort of desire to be in the room where people are being embarrassed on stage, but not be mm-hmm. one of those people. It's the same party that likes horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's funny. I don't even like horror movies. <laughs> so I, I feel like, um, I, I wouldn't be worth my salt on this podcast. Uh, if you didn't sing something. If I didn't, um, <laughs> um, if I didn't, talk about yep there we go uh that's the joanna bingo card you got (laughs) uh so yeah to talk about hamilton's role as an amazing opportunity for non-white performers in the broadway scene and if they should happen to make a a movie version of it um to get these plum these great plum roles and i told when i told the first time i listened to hamilton all the way through or on shuffle. I told Katie that, that Jonathan Groff is my favorite part because he was an actor who I knew very well before the show. And she made so much fun of me. She's like, you can't like the one white person the best. <laughs> You're not allowed to. <laughs> um, but I, yeah. And since I've changed my mind, obviously, but, um, yeah, the fact that they're, that the, the white person, and you know, there's some like white backup performers as well, but that they're in the clear minority and that the minorities are in the majority and, um, that we can just explode this notion of, you know, that we often have to talk about in terms of Game of Thrones of who can play what at which time period, you know? And, you know, the, the show gets plenty of recognition for that, but I feel like we should mention it at least if we're going to talk oh, yeah. about it on the show. So, Well, and you bring up an interesting point that if there's ever going to be any sort of visual adaptation of it, that should carry over because that will be, I feel like, the the big holding open the door for you know, multi-ethnic casting, because, I mean, theater, you kind of cast who it is. You know, we used to cast men as women when we thought women couldn't be on the stage. But I, I'm really they happy don't, don't to Don't say see... we, don't lump me into that. 
I didn't do that. No, I did it. I did it because I was like, <laughs> women are gross. I'd rather see my friends in drag. Um, uh, that has something to do with me, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like that it didn't have to come up on this podcast, but did come up oh. in the sense that now it's just because it's it's become so normal for me that I didn't even think about it. It was my third Joanna guess was race uh, because these characters are so much these actors that I've heard on the cast recording and seen doing all the publicity and definitely with the plays uh, leaning on the, the immigrant narrative uh, I guess not leaning, but highlighting would be the better, the better term for it. Um, there's a lot of like little catchphrases like immigrants, we get the job done that are easily repeatable. And those are the sort of things that bubble in the public subconscious. I would just love to have a movie with, uh, like no white leads of <laughs> Hamilton. That'd be great. Let's well, do it. And there's something, uh, sort of essentially American about the way that it was created. Uh, you know, that, that it comes from Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, uh, you know, just looking kind of back into his, obviously he is, his grandparents are from Puerto Rico, so he is the grandson of an, of immigrants. Uh, his, his mother's side of the family, there, there is a history of, uh, I think either his grandparents or somebody else, there was an interracial couple who were, um, during like the slave era, like post-slavery. So there's, mm-hmm. this is, this is an, a kid born in America. And I say kid, him being a couple of years older than me. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, growing up in, um, you know, Washington Heights, um, the Latino area of New York in, in, was Inwood, I think. Um, and telling a story the way he relates to it that is about the founding of our country, that is something that we all learned in school, but never, you know, we all relate to it in different ways. And Yeah, there's not a relatable narrative in how we're taught this in school. It's like, this is history. <laughs> right, it's like, you These know, people's faces are on Mount Rushmore, so you should know who they are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the people you know, but it, it is another American, another perspective from someone who grew up in a different part of our very big country. Um, who had a different background than me, who is telling his own interpretation of the story, which I think is, I mean, that's like, to me, that's the best of what we are as a country, is we are a country of different perspectives. And those perspectives, like Hamilton is proof that those perspectives not only matter, but can be translated in a way that speaks to other people, you know, um, that stories written by people of color don't have to just be for people of color. Um, same thing with, um, with stories told by white people. They don't have to just be for those people. Um, we can tell essentially American stories uh, from almost any perspective, and uh, we can all relate to it on some level, which I think is... Uh, that's really fascinating about like the cultural relevance of Hamilton. It's, it's a really interesting thing that it is happening now when it feels like our country is sort of divided along these lines, these sort of, mm-hmm. uh, racial lines. And Hamilton sort of is above that, you know, at least that's what it feels like to me. The white dude. So, well, so to, 
I mean, okay, yeah, this has already been like probably my most personal podcast, but I don't think I've talked about this on air, uh, mostly because I'm not sure if he's listening, but if he is, hello, dad. My dad is a, a Trump supporter. I, I don't know if I've talked about that. Uh, my dad is voting for Donald Trump. And um, he, when he first talked to me about Hamilton, he called it something like uh, the PC musical that everyone's really into or something like that. So uh, to say, like, I don't think my dad is racist, but uh, from the like Trump side of the aisle, uh, this is something that some people are not like seeing it rise above what they think as social justice worrying or PC pandering to, you know, race blind cast the show. So, which to me means it's all the more important mm-hmm. that it that it exists and that kids grow up seeing this as a normal thing. Um, so, well, yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be carried on definitely as it tours and pops up other places. I remember there was that brief controversy where there was supposedly a casting that said like no white people, and everyone got all mad, and then people were like, "Well, obviously that's you know not not what we meant in that 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 way." But, I, you know, I think I hope it's safe with Hamilton. I hope Hamilton is the beginning of something and not uh, a weird, you know, if seen later as like a weird figment of the Obama presidency or something. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you Racists don't are weird. like when you get close to it, when you listen to it, when you read the story about how it was created, you know, it's I don't think they I don't think that he, Lin-Manuel Miranda created it as some sort of you know, PC way and, um, or this hip hop, you know, he didn't think, Oh, I'm going to just make a rap version of Hamilton's life. He was, it it really was this earnest translation of this story that inspired him being told in a way that he knew how to tell it. And I think that's what, that's what gets me. And I think that's the more people that discover it, hopefully that's what they get out of it. And not just, Oh, this is like the social justice warrior. (laughs) <laughs> bastardization of our <laughs> right which i wish i really i really do think that that some people including my dad who is a huge musical fan like that's how they see the show and um the other representation thing that i want to talk about um on brand for me is uh, i was i knew that hamilton was uh, you know a race bot blind casting um but i didn't realize before listening to the soundtrack how much of an effort Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, made to include women in this narrative of the Founding Fathers, which I think was, you know, like, you can't necessarily tell Hamilton's story without telling Eliza's story, but you didn't have to tell it as completely and as well, and Angelica as well, and Mariah even, um, and not Peggy. Um, but Sorry, Peggy. Uh, sorry, Peggy, but, you know, I, I just, um, I... As we all grew up in musical theater to varying degrees, I mean, Dave and I know this maybe a little bit more when you, when you're casting these shows in like high schools and middle schools and all the girls want to be in the musicals and very few guys want to be in the musicals, but there are all these parts for guys and very few parts for women. Like that's just the constant, uh, truth of the school play. Um, so for him to create three, at least three good roles and then also like in the background chorus, uh, make that gender blind casting. So you've got all these soldiers, but they're 50% women. Um, is I just, you know, I have a tremendous respect for him for that. Yeah. Although I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not completely against that 
crazy gender balance misbalance in, in in high school a because as a straight man that's kind of cool and b because it <laughs> saved us from doing south pacific so it's, it has at least two things going for it <laughs> also Your i can't whistle so i was south like pacific. please let's not do south pacific no i'm seriously i hate south pacific i'm sorry <laughs> no I it's great a list of ideas I I, I yeah, once no got one. in like a really big fight with my best friend's mom about whether or not South Pacific was racist. Spoiler alert, it is. Um, oh, you you're telling me <laughs> someone was saying Bally High is not racist? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think she was thinking of it more in like the context of when South Pacific came out. I think she was just defending liking it. I think she's just defending liking it, you know. And um, yeah. These were racist times, Joanna. Yes, they were. Um, yeah, yeah. You could love racist things. You love. I mean, it's, it's fine. Just yeah. Be be aware. That's what that's what happened. Yeah. Or that it's a product of history. No, but it was so annoying. It's it's like it's it's like the larger workplace thing writ large, where like you had to be three times as good as you know a, a young woman wanting to be in the school play. That like any schmo, they would like beg some schmo off the football team. We didn't have a football team off the lacrosse team to like come in and be the lead male actor because we had no one, and the guy had to only be able to kind of sing. Whereas, like, all the girls could sing, like, super, super well, and you had to, like, claw teeth and nail to get a part, so. Um, and, then, and then you get cast as Peggy, and, well. <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of, like, the, well, no, that's that's actually more of a problem. I think they should gender blind cast this when they do it for school plays. Um I was going to say, I'd be curious to know if they double cast it the way they do in the original show, um, double cast the characters, or single cast the double characters um if they do it in the in the school play environment i guess it doesn't matter to think about fictional school plays versions of hamilton but i know that lynn manuel miranda has thought about it i think he himself has written the the school play version so um you know just another way in which he's a cool dude it would so. be it would be funny to, to just you know get the get the kid in high school the boy with the lowest voice and it'd just be like Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. Peggy. <laughs> Peggy. Because, I mean, that's, like, yeah, we, her whole thing, so. I mean, and that's gonna, that's going to happen because, like, that's, you know, that's the, the high school musical way way around things. <laughs> we should I, talk about... I found about, they add a lot of punchlines oh. to, to things that shouldn't have punchlines, these high school musicals. They, they do do that. Um, we should talk about the rippling out pop culture effects of... Uh, Hamilton the musical, the star making uh, production, uh, just because, you know, we should talk about the fact or I, I, I want to talk about the fact that Lynn manuel Miranda is, has done the musical or uh, co-written the musical for Moana um, is going to appear in Disney's Mary Poppins. Like Disney has just like latched on to Lynn manuel Miranda is going to appear in the Mary Poppins Returns movie. Um, and he's doing a couple other things. Isn't he doing the like... Uh, I don't think it's a day of the dead, but like the Latino uh, animated thing that they're doing, uh, which I forget what it's called. Uh, Coco, Coco. So, but he's he's doing lots of stuff. Anyway, he's, he's doing, doing all the things. he's he's doing yeah. all the things. Okay, so that's Lynn. Um, you know, David Diggs is weirdly in the Get Down, but not in the Get Down. That to was be, before he was uh, famous. Voiced by Nas in the Get Down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a weird thing that happened. Uh, but like David Diggs, Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, Renee Goldsberry, um, all of whom won Tony Awards, uh, for their performances are, are now vaulted into a certain stratosphere, I think, of fame. 
uh, rightly so. And so I'm excited to see uh, what what they all do. Mm. Yes. I, I don't know if that was a boring thing to say, but um, <laughs> I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's great. Hamilton's great. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we need well, to say before we? Well, close I just out this I adventure? can't think. I, I okay. I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to my point and make it a good okay. one, which is that I can't think of a um a cast a Broadway cast recently, and not even Book of Mormon because Book of Mormon like gave us Josh Gad and it gave us um. Wait, okay, you're going to say, since the Rent cast, this is the most influential Broadway cast. I don't even think they're, like, because what did the Rent cast do after? What did the Rent cast do? Yeah. Like, well, from Law and Order to Flash, definitely some of the Rent cast I'm still a huge fan of. Yeah, Law and Order to Flash is different than every... That's just the one guy, though. Yeah, that's just Mark. That's just one guy. (laughs) You know, Daph- uh, Daphne Rubin's Vega, like, dropped off the face of the planet. Like, um, you know, the guy who played Roger, like, you know, they didn't, like, become household names. It, but, like, that's not the case with the Hamilton cast. Sure. I mean, I think we're going to have to wait and see. We can wait and see. just, like, internet age. Wait, Regina Menzel slash... was Rent. Yeah, she was. And so was Tate There Hanks. we go. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Rent. Yeah, but okay. All right. So, anyway, wait. I'm all I'm saying is that we we can wait and see. I'm just so glad that we're not in the like time that we were born into, where it's like Cats, the greatest Broadway show ever, because Cats is not also yeah, not good. So I feel like so. Here's the thing, um, and you guys will probably have a, a much more well-rounded perspective on this than I do. Um, don't count on <laughs> it <laughs> because I don't follow what's going on on Broadway, but I feel like the there's this newer within the last five to ten years and and more specifically with uh, the Book of Mormon and now Hamilton where it's almost like there's this sort of pop culture starness to uh, these and and it, it it's worked two different ways uh, where you know you have on the Book of Mormon side you had the guys from South Park co-write this but then from there you had uh, for the guy that they did that with, did Frozen, right? Bobby, what's his name? Uh, he was from Avenue Q. Yeah, right. and he did so, do Book of Mormon, yeah. So you had this sort of a penetration between um, pop, other forms of pop culture and Broadway, and now with Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you have it going the other way, where he is now coming out and he's doing a Disney movie and another Disney movie, and he did the new Cantina song for Star Wars The Force Awakens, Right. And um, you, you sort of have this star-making potential, and I feel like it has to do with part of this has to be helped by streaming and our accessibility to these soundtracks. Because I feel like when I was younger, the only way I really would get into a different musical, like the only way I ever knew about Evita, for instance, was by going to a local theater and seeing it. But now it's like I can if a new Broadway show is a hit, I can just stream it on Apple music or Spotify. And all of a sudden I can be hooked without ever seeing it. You know, I eventually did see book of Mormon, um, but only after listening to the soundtrack like a million times on streaming. So I think, I think there's yeah. a, there's an accessibility 
to it nowadays that is helping. Um, also, yeah, I also think we can't underestimate uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's social media canny. True. Um, which feels genuine, but also like he's very good at it. And so he's grown, like he's not just the voice on the soundtrack. He's this person that interacts with his fans like every single day. Uh, and, and via videos that he uploads, other uh, members of the cast have become like part of that. And, you know, not just the ham for ham shows, but just like there are just like little backstage videos that he puts up on his Twitter all the time. And I think he like greets people on Twitter every single morning and every and says goodnight every single night, like maybe not every single day, but most days. It's certainly I think every day that he was doing the show. So um, he definitely grew his own celebrity in this era of influencers <laughs> and social media presence being uh, an element of celebrity, a yeah, bigger right. element and of celebrity. I, and I, I think that like there's, just there's a tie in there, okay. too. Yeah, yeah. I think it just amplifies the field because living in New York for 10 years, there was always something everybody was talking about. Right. But not all America was talking about it. Right. So I feel like Hamilton not only is this like great groundbreaking show that, you know, had its live birth on something that's on YouTube in front of the president that you could see uh, has been, you know, pimped by actual politicians and has a really charismatic and talented lead. But like it's managed to move out of the, the Broadway sphere and touch non-Broadway people, which is, you know, makes a makes a good show. Hamilton. 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 <laughs> <laughs> is that it? Did we do it? It's good. I like I, I like talking about Hamilton. This was um, a deeply uh, personal episode for us. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone wanted to know our backstories with our live musicals, theater. yeah, musicals mean a lot to me. I like them too. <laughs> Neil, what's up next week? Uh, is it? Is it? Are we spoiling? Are we doing cool things? Are we napping? Are we we singing uh, Hamilton over and over aren't again. Aren't we bubbling? Oh, spoiler alert! Oh no! <laughs> uh, so next week we are uh, we're flipping the script a little bit and uh, doing a little adaptation of our own schedule. Uh, we're actually going <laughs> to do two weeks in a row of interesting, sort of um, more general purpose episodes before we dig into some really. I don't want to. I'm not going to spoil what happens after this, but. Uh, some really fun episodes to come, some very nerdy stuff, uh, some very, uh, I don't know, Dave Dave will be really into these uh, next yes. couple episodes. But before we get to those, we are going to do a Thought Bubble episode next week with three of us, where we're talking uh, comics, right? Is that, that's yeah, I guess if, if you guys... It's a crossover! In, <laughs> it's a crossover episode, which is much more for the Thought Bubble. That's the podcast, Joanna and I... Do about comic books. If you haven't, you know, heard it, uh, you you're gonna it's gonna push into the storm of spoilers feed and the thought bubble feed next week. So that's what that is. You could tell the intro is gonna be different. You'll you'll notice it's different. And also, it'll yeah, be a lot of me going, "What are comics?" Just kidding. Um, we'll talk about yeah, all this the is, comics we've been reading. This is your ample warming that things are gonna be a little different that's next week. Ample so. warming. Gotta have a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. And then the following week. Uh, we're going to do a little fall preview where we're going to talk about what we're anticipating uh, across all different s- segments of popular culture in the fall. So we've got a I couple think, cool weeks going here. I think since that's two weeks away, we should solicit you, listener, your help on that. 
are there things that you're looking forward to in the fall? Mm-hmm. Because I know we have ideas, but I'm also super interested in your ideas because I can't fill my own time with my own stuff. I'm going to start rereading things, and that's not good for anybody. <laughs> New things. Let's figure it out, guys. Yep, and then... Uh, Star Wars spoilers forever. Help us. You can also, with that, help us uh, plan some fall episodes because uh, we are... There's... You know, there's always there's always little holes in the schedule, like the next two weeks, which we've chosen to fill with uh, with two fun ones. So I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be great. So they could reach us at stormspoilers at gmail dot com. at stormspoilers uh, on the Twitter, or uh, you can go to the website, which is fightingthewarm dot com slash got spoilers, or you can type in stormspoilers dot com. Takes you to the same page. Leave us a comment on this episode. We'll keep track of those. We'll get those all together. And in two weeks, we'll talk uh, about what we're all excited about in the fall. Awesome. Neil, let's keep it with you. Where can people find more of your stuff on the internet? Uh, you can find me on filmschoolrejects.com, sort of. I'm mostly on vacation this week, but I will check in and write something. Uh, and on Twitter, at Rejects, currently posting uh, photos from my road trip across from Austin to L.A., uh, the hashtag is uh, called hashtag dog stuff across America, which is me and my <laughs> little best friend, Nico and our trip. So it's been a lot of fun. We saw dinosaurs today. It was great. Nice. Real dinosaurs. I'm going to assume. Yes. Yeah. Oh, definitely real dinosaurs and, uh, a mountain that was on fire. Great. That sounds perfect. Now Joanna's going to sing something. Uh, I'm Jonah Robinson. <laughs> Damn it. You can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter. And when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Yay! I'm Dave Gonzalez. Happy to not have been the only person to sing on this podcast. You could find me on Twitter at DA7E. You could find my writing at geek.com. You can also find me at Thrillist.com this week with the crazy true story behind Stranger Things, which I didn't mention on this podcast because we ran out of time and because it's really batshit crazy. Like the craziest, beyond crazy Game of Thrones theories that we have. So until next time, let's listen to some Hamilton again because god damn it, it's great. Theodosia, she's mine. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep loving anyway. Laugh and we cry and we break and we make our mistakes And if there's a reason I'm by her side And so many have tried Then I'm willing to wait for it I'm willing to wait for it Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher Preacher, preacher, preacher But there are things that the homilies and hymns won't teach ya Teacher, teacher, teacher My mother was a genius My father commanded respect, respect when they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make mistakes. And if there's a reason, I'm still alive when everyone who loves me has died. I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing